Hello, and welcome to the Journal of American History podcast. I'm your host, Marina Meekum, editorial assistant for the Journal of American History and PhD candidate in history at Indiana University. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, my name is Stephen Andrews, interim executive editor of the Journal of American History and an adjunct professor of history at Indiana University. I'm also an editor at Process, a blog for American history, and the consulting editor of The American Historian. My work in teaching focuses on the cultural and religious history of the United States, and I teach classes on religion, reform, and the Civil War. I'm also engaged in public history, appearing in the media to discuss the history of conspiracy theories and working to help educators address conspiracy theories in the classroom. Today, my guest is Yevon Terrian. Yevon is a visiting instructor of history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. His research and teaching focus is on the social history of colonial Louisiana, early America, and the Atlantic world. Yevon is working on a book manuscript tentatively entitled Deserting Louisiana, Unfree Workers and Runaways in an Early American Colony. This project is based on his doctoral research at the University of Pittsburgh, which won the 2022 Herman Gutman Prize for Outstanding Dissertation in U.S. Labor and Working Class History. In this episode, we discuss his article, Baptiste and Marianne's Balbasha, Enslavement, Freedom, and Belonging in Early New Orleans, 1733 to 1748, which appeared in the fall 2023 issue of the Journal of American History. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we really enjoyed receiving your article, and we think it's going to make a, a really great publication. Uh, can you tell us me uh, a little bit about yourself and how you came to this subject? Uh, yeah, uh, very very happy to be to be on the podcast. Um, I'm a visiting instructor at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, so I'm, that's where I'm, I'm calling from. And um, I came across this specific story while I was doing my doctoral research uh, with the University of Pittsburgh at the time, and find the story uh, actually in Chicago at the Newberry Library on, on microfilm. But the the documents that I used are held. Um, in uh, the originals are in, are in New Orleans, they're French colonial manuscripts from the 18th century. And um, I found the story while I was researching a dissertation that looks at the, the social history of Louisiana and specifically at issues of uh, labor and resistance through the lens of desertion. So I was essentially looking for stories about runaways. That's mm-hmm. what I was looking for. Well, I mean, for those listeners who haven't read the article, can you give us, I mean, can you situate us in time and space? Um, we want to know about, of course, Baptiste and Marianne, but but can you give us a little sense of, of their world? Yeah, absolutely. So the their story takes place in the mid-18th century in French colonial New Orleans. So at the time, New Orleans is a really young, small city. It's the, the, the capital of uh, French colonial Louisiana. It was founded just a, a generation earlier. And... Um, Baptiste and Marianne are enslaved in that city, which is very much uh, a frontier town, essentially, at the time, where uh, the, the, the French population is, is minimal, just a few thousands, and they're surrounded by actually a black majority population in the New Orleans uh, region. And then as soon as you leave the vicinity of New Orleans, Louisiana is effectively Indian country, as it would be through the 18th century, to the even including the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and so they're... In the grand scheme of things, they're still living in an indigenous uh, land, mm-hmm. except that the little island where uh, their lives take place in the, the decade, basically, where I, where I study them, is the one that is effectively colonized by the French and surrounded by plantations, mostly mostly manned by uh, African labor. 
Now, the title has has a word that I don't think most readers, and I certainly wasn't familiar with, is was balbasha. What is that? Yeah, so I, I I made sure to include only one foreign word uh, in the <laughs> in the title, and uh, I was debating. We'll definitely talk about marinage, I'm sure, which means slave desertion. Sure. So I was thinking of maybe including a French word, but I thought it would be more appropriate to use an indigenous term and specifically a Chickasaw term. So Baptiste and Marianne, those two enslaved siblings that I that I study and that I write about, uh, they're of Chickasaw descent. So the Chickasaws are one of the indigenous people of uh, the, the lower Mississippi. They're uh, neighbors and their language is very close to the Choctaws, who are the the larger group in the area and the main ally of the French in, the, in that period. And so Balbasha is a Chickasaw word, it's very close to the Choctaw word. There are different variants of that term in the, in the region. And it essentially means that uh, the Chickasaws designated the lower Mississippi Valley as a place of foreign language. That's what the term means, a place of mm. foreigners or a place of multiple languages. So something like cosmopolitanism. Uh, incarnate, if you want. And then it became the term that they used to designate, by extension, the city that was created there, uh, meaning New Orleans. So it, it suggests that for them, the area was already a place of multiple people coming in contact to trade and to exchange before even European colonization began. So I, 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 this is a fascinating world that you're constructing and that that they're existing in. So, I mean, I think the idea of, of using that term in the in the title is excellent because it, it does kind of capture the really this is a colonial story, but it's not a colonial story that that people who are mostly familiar with say the East Coast colonial uh, experience are definitely going to recognize. Mm-hmm. So, what are the other factors? So, where there are native groups are are Baptiste and Marianne are they part of that? Uh, of are they Choctaw? Are they Chickasaw? Are they part? Are they part of a native group that's the majority once you get out of New Orleans? Yeah. So their their um, their ancestors are, are Chickasaw. Their mother, who is enslaved with them uh, at first until they become they become orphaned uh, when they're respectively ten and six years old. Uh, so they they're initially raised and grow up with their mother, uh, who's Chickasaw, and the Chickasaws are. A relatively powerful group uh, in the in the region, and they're for the majority of the history of French colonial Louisiana. They're the main enemy, essentially the main rivals of the French. They're traditionally allied with uh, with the British in the in the region, uh, and so even though there are quite a few indigenous tribes surrounding uh, New Orleans, they're often called the, the petite nation, the smaller nations, are typically working with and for the French. Um, and uh, the French also rely on the support of a larger group, which is the Choctaw. Uh, the Chickasaw themselves are actually mostly at war and at least in, in conflict with the French. So mm. the two reasons why is that re- it's relevant for that story is that Baptiste and Marianne and their mother were initially enslaved. Certainly, I don't, I don't have you know, hard evidence, but most certainly because they were prisoners of war. They had been captured either by the French themselves or by some of their indigenous allies and then sure. eventually sold to some, some French colonists. Uh, so that's how they came to be enslaved in the first place. And the other reason why that matters is that even if they had managed to leave the, c- the city of New Orleans and flee to the surrounding swamps or woods, they would have immediately ran into indigenous people who were not allied ah. with their people and who were often working as slave catchers uh, for right. for the French. Now, is it, 
I think many of our readers and listeners might be familiar, I think, with a kind of British East Coast ver- understanding of slavery. Are there important institutional differences in understanding slavery in Louisiana in this period? Or is it is it is it fairly similar to what we've understood as how slavery, as, in a sense, works in the 18th century? Yeah, that's that's an important question, and that's honestly a slightly difficult question, to be honest. If only because specialists of one region are not necessarily specialists of you know all regions. Um, but the there are there are several big differences. Uh, one of the big differences is simply that the, the the French, especially in Louisiana, are very few in numbers. Mm. Uh, it's a very small demographically. It's a pretty small colony. It's an outpost essentially, and the 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 focus of the of the French Empire in America is in the Caribbean and in the second, you know, as a bit as an afterthought in New France. And so Louisiana and, and Guyana are definitely the smaller peripheral outpost of that empire. So that's that's one thing. The, the second thing is obviously it's a Catholic colony. Right. And so the, the Catholic Church plays a role that is quite sensual, but also often very ambiguous because they're slaveholders themselves. They try to to, to, to work in what they consider the interest of enslaved people, but it's usually, you know, it, it takes the place, it, it, it involves religious duties, like making sure they have access to baptisms and proper funerals, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're not working for the abolition of slavery or they're not working toward, uh, toward emancipation. Um, and so it, in many ways, I would argue like the, the, the economic political dynamics that exists in, in British colonies, for instance, or in Dutch colonies are quite similar. Uh, mm-hmm. For for what's ha- to what's happening in in Louisiana from the perspective of enslaved people, which is the part that I'm the most interested in, I would argue that being enslaved in Virginia, being enslaved in Louisiana, or being enslaved in Massachusetts, it's, prob- it's probably not that different. Right. I guess one question is, what is the economy here? Is it a plantation economy? What are what are enslaved people? Uh, maybe not necessarily uh, Baptiste and Marion, but what what are what are enslaved people doing in Louisiana this period? Is it yeah, sugar? Is it that, that's that's obviously a crucial, important question. One thing that that perhaps people who don't study slavery on a regular basis might not necessarily realize is it's kind of a shocking factor, is that even though slavery is essentially an economic institution, the purpose of slavery is to extract labor mm-hmm. um, through violence and through racial, you know racial systems of oppression, but the purpose of it is to extract value from labor. But paradoxically, perhaps because it is such an obvious purpose of the whole system, this precious little documentation, at least in the case of of Louisiana, uh, about what enslaved people are actually doing. Their labor Hmm. is very rarely described. Their production, uh, the result of their labor is discussed. You know, you see trading of tobacco, indigo, um, the different crops that are that are grown on on plantations, but their 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 labor, their concrete labor, and what they're doing in their daily lives often have to be extrapolated and speculated and reconstituted. And it's especially hard when you're looking at people who are may may not be representative of what we imagine as the sure. the, the the main idea of of slavery when you're looking at enslaved children, for instance. Uh, But just just to go back to the the, the question of the economy, you have a a burgeoning plantation economy, but it's really in its infancy. So it's it's not nearly as productive as the French colonies in the Caribbean, for instance. So as I mentioned, plantations of of indigo, tobacco, 
uh, rice as well are uh, some of the main crops that are raised in the area. But the, the region of New Orleans has a more mixed economy because it's the only real city in Louisiana because it's a port city. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also largely oriented toward uh, to our trade and not just transatlantic trade, but actually the, the main export of New Orleans for most of the period is uh, furs, uh, especially mm-hmm. uh, deer skins that are brought to New Orleans by uh, indigenous people who are trading with the French. Right. So, so, so we now have, we kind of sketched out the world in which this, this story is happening and, and what is happening in uh, Baptiste and Marianne's corner of it? Where is, where do they fit into this larger system? We know that they are indigenous, uh, at least their mother was indigenous. Um, and where are they? Are they, they're in New Orleans and, and can you tell us a little bit about their story? Yeah, so their their story is the main part that I'm that I'm reconstituting, trying to to piece it together from very fragmentary documents and evidence. So there are inevitably some some gaps, but I'll, I'll try to, to to give you like the the main the main arc uh, of their story. Mm-hmm. So they uh, they are enslaved from their youngest age. Uh, their their mother, as I mentioned, uh, passed away, and so they're orphaned by the time uh, that before they enter their, their teenage years, and um, the the sister Marianne is of mixed race uh, descent. She's described systematically in the document as Métis, meaning that one of her parents, definitely her her father, is a is a white man, probably one of the previous enslavers of of the siblings. Um, whereas Baptiste is only mentioned as in the racist parlance of the time, he's described as sauvage, meaning savage, which is the racial term that the French used to describe uh, indigenous people, and. They, they found themselves enslaved by five, at least that I can identify, five different, uh, five different Frenchmen. Um, and they're passed on as a series of events of some people leaving the colony, some people uh, contracting debts, some people uh, declaring uh, bankruptcy or simply just being passed on from a succession to the next. They're sold, they're leased. And so they're... they're they're moving around in, in an environment that remains actually quite small. They live in that frontier town because they're, uh, they're enslaver in the most of the period that I, that I cover has two homes, one in the city and one which is a farm outside of the city. One of the, the conclusions, my, my exploration of their case is that they live in those two different places, probably separated most of the time. And one of the reasons they're running away so often is to try to be mm. together, to reunite right. with each other. Um, and so their story is very much a story of growing up enslaved in an environment that is, on the one hand, largely alien to the one of their people, but also the only one really that they know and that they have to grow to adapt to. So whether that involves relations with the Catholic Church, relations with their white uh, black and occasionally indigenous uh, indigenous neighbors, and so they're trying to tie to to to, to create ties to uh, a community that is forged out of the 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 the, the few the, the few elements over which they have control, essentially. Right. Well, I mean, a key part of this story is that it's exactly what you talk about this this marinage, right? Which is which is running away. Um, how many times do they run away? Where do they go? And 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 what are the consequences? Yeah, I mean, their, their story is exceptional in, in many ways, but the most exceptional part is evidently, and that's the reason why I found them initially, because of what they do and what they do. And that's, I, I want to emphasize this point, it is almost the only thing that I know about them for certain that is hard and fact 
documented in, in the evidence, which is that they run away, I believe, more than anyone on record. They run away 61 times uh, <laughs> in the period of nine years, which means basically every other month uh, they run mm-hmm. away, sometimes for quite long period. Uh, Baptiste overall is gone away from his enslaver uh, at least 15% of the time that he theoretically would have been would have been enslaved and so they they gain a lot of momentary autonomy perhaps not freedom um but they're uh, they're on the run if you want so they're hiding or mm-hmm. uh, very very extremely frequently and so that sets them apart beside their ethnicity and their age when we think of um better known and better documented stories of enslavement and resistance i believe uh, so this story of, uh, I mean, oftentimes people who are less familiar with, I mean, that that running away and marinade, these kinds of things are 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 a typical or or not unusual form of slave resistance throughout mm-hmm. the period of slavery in North America. But sixty one times, mm-hmm. when they come back, is there a record of of punishment? Is there a record of how this affects? I mean, because there are some. Uh, later on in, in in North America, the idea that a slave that's liable to run away is sometimes loses value or gets punished or gets scarred or gets some kind of, of physical torture is used to either make an example of them or to punish them. Is any of that happening to them when they leave and come back? For sure. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, one one thing that uh, that I find striking, because I've presented that case many times, in, including when I discovered the document, because I wanted to be sure I was looking at what I think I was looking at, because it was so surprising, mm-hmm. is that the the people I talked to, including some specialists of slavery, very often were quite shocked. Like, how could that happen? And s- several people even told me, no, you're clearly looking at it wrong. It cannot be what you think it is. It cannot be a right. timeline of their 61 uh, desertions, partly because it seems so outlandish, but also because typically it would not have been recorded in that way and documented in that way. I have no doubt that uh, enslaved people resisted in many, many ways and ran away very frequently, even more than we assume. Sure. But what is exceptional is why it was recorded in this case. And it wasn't recorded as part of a judicial process. It was recorded simply as part of a probate case or a financial Mm. document in which the person who enslaved them for that period tried to claim uh, the 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 profits of their sale when they were eventually sold, even though he was not their owner, claiming that he had made a lot of expenses to sustain them, to close them, to feed them, to reimburse the people that they had robbed because they had committed some theft. And especially the most important document for me, because he had paid people to catch them and retrieve them when they run away. And that's how, that's how the story is, is documented because of this financial document. Now, in terms of the punishment that would have resulted from desertion. So there's a there's an obvious logical answer, which is the one that is that features in most textbooks. When I teach the history of Louisiana, that's the first thing I mention is that the, the French has this apparently extremely official, stringent document called the Code Noir, which is perhaps the most famous of all slave laws. Mm-hmm. And the, the Code Noir lays out ex- very explicitly the punishments for runaways, which are really extremely harsh and they they go from whipping and branding to body mutilation and eventually the death penalty for repeated offenders now and my my research looks specifically at the the history of runaways and i have i have to have to say in the 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 older cases that i've studied 
I've never found a single runaway who was executed for the crime of running away. Some runaways were executed for other crimes that they had committed, like attacking a colonist or, uh, or robberies, for instance, which obviously doesn't make the doesn't make the punishment any more just or fair. Sure. But just to say that slave desertion in itself was not actually um, frequently punished by the state, by the authority. And one of the reasons is simply it was very rarely reported and the government was actually not in charge of policing slave discipline in, on a regular basis. Uh, slave owners themselves were typically in charge of that. So private decisions would have been made as to the forms of punishment. We know from various testimonies that whipping was the dominant form of punishment. Now the question is, would it have been applied to children in the same manner? Possibly mm. not. Would it have been applied to uh, indigenous uh, children in the same manner that enslaved Africans were treated, perhaps not depending on different, different factors. And also the fact that they were not actually the property of the person who enslaved them. I think that's probably the, the main explanation oh. uh, would have explained why they probably would not have been punished as harshly. And at any rate, there's no evidence that they, they bought, they had scars or any uh, mutilations that would have diminished their value when they were sold, they were sold for the, 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 the expected value of sure, a teenage sure. enslaved person at the time. They clearly hadn't been hobbled or anything that was would have shown up on a in a sales report or yes, something. Yes, and, and not to make like the of the, the their case at all, but the fact that they keep running away all the time mean that obviously they're definitely not deterred and not oh, sure. not disabled. Right. You know, how does this story or, or or how does this Louisiana fit into a larger story of indigenous slavery? I mean, I think and I if I am incorrect about the what I'm gonna say is a more typical story on the East Coast, then then please correct me. But usually the story seems to be that indigenous slavery is experimented with, it is attempted, but it fails fairly early on in the colonial process because of uh, indigenous resistance or an inability to keep people from, from fleeing or, or, or other kinds of issues, and it was replaced with African slavery. Is that happening in Louisiana too? Are we early in that process, or is there a different process in Louisiana? No, I, I think that is correct. And the, 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 grand, the grand picture of the, the, the history of American slavery is, def, is definitely the one you, you, you presented. But I think in, in recent years, and I mean, the, the, the current generation of scholarship has um, made a lot of, um, offered a, a lot of new arguments about the history of indigenous slavery. I would argue it's probably the most dynamic field in all of American history. Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing that historians of uh, New France, of Virginia, of the Carolina, of New England have emphasized recently is that indigenous slavery actually doesn't go anywhere. Mm. It starts immediately with the first colonial efforts. Uh, it's actually way more important economically and even politically in just establishing the systems of enslavement that would be used to oppress Africans as well. Um, and it really doesn't disappear, even when it is banned and is and it's outlawed, uh, as happened in, in many Spanish colonies. For instance, um, the, the Spanish ban effectively uh, slavery, actually, even in Louisiana, when they take over the colony. But we have plenty of evidence that in the in the Southwest, for instance, uh, people of indigenous descent were actually recruited and kept in in forced labor uh, for generations and, and centuries. So the the, the question becomes, why is it that it's often been uh, forgotten? Uh, Andres Resendez published a, a book that had quite a lot of success called The, the Other Slavery. Um, mm -hmm. And 
why this other history is often, um, you know, not necessarily ignored, but we remain kind of marginal in the, in the dominant narrative of, sure. of, uh, of early America. And there's lots of reasons, but one of them is simply that uh, enslaved, uh, enslaved Native Americans are not traded across the Atlantic. They're not purchased uh, by slave traders on the, in the, on the same scale, but also not in the same process that happened mm -hmm. with African slavery. And so it d simply does not create the same type of documents. We don't have uh, the equivalent of the transatlantic slave trade database mm -hmm. for uh, indigenous uh, people. And so people like Baptiste and Marianne, for instance, they are nowhere to be seen until you find that very unique and exceptional document that had been overlooked by many scholars who had looked at the same archive simply because it, it really it really doesn't fit into a lot of narrative that we are, we actually have so it's important to think that the growth of african slavery does not mean that native american or indigenous slavery is disappearing it, it both things can be happening at the same time yeah exactly and and plus the the I mean, we, we, we obviously, it's, it's normal that we think of African slavery and indigenous slavery as two separate categories, but obviously you have a lot of mixed race people who actually, you know, could pass mm -hmm. as, could be described as African or could be described as indigenous. And when the, when the, the, the enslavement of indigenous people is effectively prohibited in some colonies, you often see waves of freedom suits and lawsuits after that of enslaved people of African descent who are visibly categorized as black by the authorities who claim to have native ancestry. And then it's hard. It's very difficult for historians to establish to what extent that was true. But we know for a fact that a lot of people of color in throughout the Americas have indigenous ancestry themselves. And so you also have the, the, the corresponding phenomenon of slaveholders forcing people of indigenous descent into categories that they describe as African and black to make sure that they remain enslaved. Sure. Sure. Uh, another, another interesting element of this is the kind of way in which Marnage is a social event, right? These events, these runaways, this, the, uh, the Baptiste and Marianne, they're, what they're doing is taking place in, as you described in a relatively small world, right? That this is a, a tight subject world in which where they ran away seems to be fairly not, not just New Orleans, but fairly geographically limited. And the number of people they inter they interact with, many of them must have known their status or must have been, been related or business relations. How do their escapes um, show the way that this world was tied together? Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating aspect that I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about and, and, and wondering about and... Uh, I mean, my initial thought was everybody must have known who they were because mm -hmm. they would have really stood out. They're, they're indigenous. One of them is most likely the, the child of a, of a Frenchman, uh, their children, and they spend so much time uh, running away and they're, uh, the, the house town, the, the, the home in the city of their enslaver is right by uh, what is today Jackson Square, right smack mm. in the middle of the French Quarter. Uh, and when they run away, they're often stopped or caught or retreat from a location that is literally across the street or a block away or on the next plantation. So they don't go far. They're surrounded by people who know them. And not only that, but one, 
one breakthrough that I, that I managed to make that actually allowed me to even write a story at all was to map their desertion, to just see where they were going. Mm -hmm. So the, not to be too technical about the, the research, but the, I think it's kind of interesting that the, the document itself only lists people. It lists ah. the people who retrieve them. Um, and I extrapolated and, 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 and tried to estimate based on who retrieved them what the locations were, looking at where their residence was, what their place of work was, and usually it was actually in often the same the same building or the same block at least. So I could extrapolate and try to map uh, the places where they ended up, and that's where I could see first it's a very small area that they're that they're covering. Uh, even though, of course, we have to remember that they're doing that all on foot in an area that mm -hmm. is not entirely settled. So we would have traveled much, much slower than we do what we do today. Um, and the second thing is that the people who retrieve them know them, but that also means that the siblings know them and that Baptiste and Marianne are actually effectively running away to people that they know for a reason. And I, I could figure out essentially three reasons because there's three types of people that they, that they run away to and that they end up with. One is immediate relations of uh, their enslaver, people who are uh, their neighbors or business associates, so perhaps who could plead their case uh, with, a, with their enslaver. Two are figures of authority, some religious figures, some secular figures in government who could have helped them petition for their freedom, because that's one thing I, I, I assume we'll touch on is that I think they had a freedom case or a freedom suit in the back of their mind that motivates some of their, some of their escapes. And the last but not least, they flee to, to meet up and to reconnect with a lot of people who had been important in their lives before, enslaved people, some indigenous, some black, who had lived with them or next to them uh, in previous years. And, and so I think there's, there's definitely a, a very coherent lo logic to their movement. They're not running away into the wilderness. They're trying to connect with people who can help them or who are important to them or who are a source of comfort because, of course, they're children and teenagers, so they're also right. looking to break their isolation and to, to find company and solace. So, I mean, so clearly the escapes, or I, I don't want to assume that they are, but clearly the escapes seem to be at some point a form of resistance, but also a form of community building. And, and doing this, you can kind of see the way in which, despite whatever legal separations there might be, there's a community here that exists over across and through lines of culture and race and ownership and religious status and social status. Absolutely. Um, that is, that is definitely the, that is definitely the case. And I think their, their, their effort to, to build a community and to forge maybe like a, an adopted or imagined or invented family is, I would argue it's, it's in itself, it's a form of resistance because mm -hmm. what slavery was doing to people and especially to, to young people like them, to orphans like them, was also to just essentially break down their world and, and oppress them through isolation. And so one thing that they're doing is to break their isolation, including, sure. I'm pretty certain, from each other. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things is that as I'm reading the piece, I'm seeing that these are these are triple obscured historical characters, right? They're obscured because they are enslaved. They're obscured from many of the typical sources we would use because they're indigenous. And they're also obscured because they're children. And these are three social conditions that can often uh, obscure people. And, and they are at, you know, they, they have all three of these uh, 
through at different times. So of course they're getting older, but it's sometimes unclear and and not unclear in a way that it's confusing, but it's overlapping and intersectional that are they in, are they primarily oppressed at a given time by a given person because they're enslaved or because they're indigenous or because they're children? Because it seems, and we had mentioned a little bit about their claims for manumission, that some people seem to be holding them temporarily because of their youth. And yet the the terms of their enslavement or the terms of their oppression or their lack of um, social status seems to shift from time to time based on age factors of indigeneity or race or or age. Is that accurate? I mean, are they are these things shifting over time the way it seems to me as a reader? Yeah, that's that's an important and, and that's and that's frankly a difficult question. If only because the, the documents don't really address that, like the the. The, the question as to whether these people are actually enslaved and should be enslaved is not ever really raised. They only mm. discussed as matters of property and they only discussed as, as uh, part of who, basically whose estate are they part of is always the question that comes up in, right. the, in the document. But inevitably, when you try to read between the line or try to imagine the, the world, even of the people who, who, who record them and who enslave them, it's pretty clear that they're not quite sure what to make of them because they realize they do not actually belong to anyone who's present there. Their owner uh, has gone back to France, uh, presumably after fathering Marianne, maybe because he had fathered Marianne and he had a family in France. I do, I do not have all the details about him. Um, but there's this issue of ownership that is a bit uncertain. And that's something that is really flagrant in the document that you realize that after six or seven years, people have essentially forgotten whose slave they're supposed to be. Mm. And some of the some of the parties involved in the legal disputes have to remind the authorities constantly, no, no, the, they're enslaved. They're not my slaves. They belong to that person. He left them with me in that circumstance. Here is the document and a copy of the document that, that verifies that. And so you you see something interestingly fleshed out that should be obvious, but that tends to be overlooked is people, all people are enslaved by custom because mm. they're regarded as, oh yeah, that person is a slave either because it's taken for granted due to their race or due to, you know, their, you know, their honor. And sometimes they have papers, but all of that relies on just the consensus of everyone in power that yes, we continue to enslave them. And then you see, you see moments when that breaks down, even in French Louisiana, when theoretically enslaved people did not have access to courts, did not have any legal rights, were not allowed to sue for anything or even serve as, as witness against the slave owner. There are a few freedom suits that are brought through petitions, uh, including by people that Baptiste and Maria knew because they were their neighbors or they had worked with them or they had lived with them. Uh, some of whom actually obtained their, their freedom because it had been promised to them in a previous uh, document, mm. often in a will that had been documented. Um, and so I, I, would, I would argue that the examples around them of enslaved people fighting for their freedom, including through the courts, even though they're not supposed to be in the courts, uh, probably spurred them into seeking some kind of legal help. And I would assume that's why they're going to government officials. That's why they're going to, um, to members of the clergy, even though those people might not actually be disposed to help them. Right. Now, I mean, do they ever press suit for, I mean, there are times where it feels almost as if they are expecting that at, at 18 or at some point they'll be freed. I mean, I guess it's impossible to know what they were thinking. 
Yeah, I'm 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 pretty certain I understand the the the, the logic and the, the the reason why. It's because their um their initial owner when he leaves them behind when he leaves France, he leaves them in 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 the charge of one of his colleagues uh, to whom he home he owes a debt. And so essentially their legal status at first is they're a collateral left behind mm. as long, uh, until a debt is repaid um, by the owner. But obviously after several years in that uh, condition, the, the value of their labor, the fact that they've been enslaved for years has essentially largely repaid the debt, which was a small debt to begin with. Sure. And the person who, who, who was their guardian due to that, to that debt actually dies himself. And so they find themselves in the custody of yet another person who's the one who creates all the, all the documents. And so I'm absolutely certain that the, those, those children and teenagers themselves at this point have completely um, internalized the fact that their enslavement is unjust, not just because slavery is unjust. I don't think there's, there's a lot of, you know, it's not a time of abolition. There's not a, and there's no anti-slavery movement at the time of any significance in the, in the region, but that their own captivity is unfair. And also that it doesn't match the way indigenous people, especially the, the Chickasaws in their case, understood captivity, which was often a temporary relation, typically more like that of a hostage, for instance, that was used in negotiations or in, in a situation in which you could actually eventually um, uh, escape or break free from or grow sure. out of. Uh, and now they've lost their their mother and they have to navigate their, their own captivity, but their mother must have known, must have known of that promise that must have been made to her that eventually she would be freed and that her, her, her own slavery was temporary. She would have passed on that information. Right. Uh, to the children, people around them would have known you're not really supposed to be enslaved. This man who's enslaving you is not actually your owner. That would have been discussed around them. And that seems to then go into why do you have these children running away so often and why the punishment, as you mentioned earlier, might be different than you would have seen if this was someone who has had, had a less um, multivocal position within their own enslavement. Yeah, exactly. If it, and because their 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 case is actually documented in a in a in a very very limited way by very fragmentary evidence, one one way to try to understand situations like that is obviously through comparison with mm -hmm. other cases around them, right? To establish subcontext, and in the same in the exact same period, you see quite a few cases of overseers who are. Um, rarely prosecuted, but sometimes denounced for having abused uh, slaves that they do not own. And so getting, right, you have super, you know, supervisors and managers on plantations uh, getting in, in some legal trouble, some economic trouble, just simply getting fired for having abused, uh, abused their, their, their power, not because it was a violation of human rights. That's not a concern at the time, but because it was a violation of property rights. And so I think the the, the man who enslaved them, he's haven't mentioned his name because I'd rather uh, memorialize uh, Baptiste and Marianne than their sure. enslaver, but his name is Gérard Ferry and he's a prominent businessman in, in New Orleans. He spends a lot of his time in the court and so he's very familiar uh, and people are very familiar with him and by extension they'd be familiar with the two children that he enslaves because he's a, he doesn't own a lot of enslaved people uh, himself actually. His wife owns several slaves, but he, he doesn't actually enslave anyone for many years. So the only people that he can actually control 
and uh, whose labor you can actually control are those two children. So because he spends so much time in the court, um, I think he's very well aware of the, the limitations of what he can do with them and, and what he can get away mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of their, and their treatment. Because at some point, he's supposed to, uh, to settle the accounts of the succession of the estates that he's in charge of. Oh, so one of the questions that kind of this talking about this unusual situation brings up, and and I don't, I don't even know if it's a fair question to ask. It's about whether you see Baptiste and Marianne, whether their experiences are representative, are they unique, um, and whether they're one or the other. Does it? Um, what are the kind of bigger pictures that, or the bigger questions that this work can then um, shed some light on? Yeah, I mean, it is certainly a fair question because I get asked that question all the time when I present, <laughs> when I present this case. And I, I, I tend to work with lots of micro histories and I, the, the stories I'm interested in involve a lot of issues of slave resistance. And I, I would argue to an extent, they always seem a bit, a bit exceptional because, of course, if enslaved people were running away sure, literally sure. all the time, then they would not be enslaved in the first place. And so it, I realized that the more you look at stories of resistance, the more it can be a little, a little bit misleading because you, I, I think some people who are critical of those, of those studies of, of resistance and of, uh, of history from below and this, ty this type of history that I write about, part of their issue is they worry that we're underplaying the, um, you know, the, the, the oppression and the, the, the amount and the, the disparity of power and the fact that the real power definitely, obviously is on the side of slaveholders and that's right. Right. And, Enslaved people are essentially trying to survive, but they never have the upper hand. So I, I hope I'm not giving that that impression. Uh, so in terms of representativity, uh, yeah, that I mean, that that is a tough question because I mean I'm I'm trying not to avoid the question, but I find it interesting that no one ever asks that question when someone writes a biography of Thomas Jefferson, for instance. Sure. No, like, no, that's you know, right. That's he right. was not representative, but then no one questions whether it's worth telling that story. So I would argue it's, it's difficult to always establish what is representative or not, but I understand the, the weight of the question. I see their case as exceptional in, in some ways. There are some factors that definitely make their story different and makes it worth exploring. But at the same time, what I find striking is what it reveals. It reveals we never see, almost never see enslaved children in, in mm. legal documents. If we see them, typically it's as a number. Sometimes their age is going to be mentioned. Often their name is not even mentioned. So they're mentioned as just more property. Mm -hmm. But they were there. And they also had some agency. And they also had their own vision. And, and that's I'm going to state something extremely obvious. But obviously, all the enslaved adults are uh, former children. Yeah, and right. so the experiences that, that children had under slavery are absolutely crucial. And I would think that's probably the, the least, the least well-documented part of, of enslavement. We, and, um, and of pretty much any historical subject in general, children are often you know, the, forgotten, uh, the forgotten side of those, of those story. It makes it, that, that story also makes it, for me, like a good reminder that indigenous people never really went uh, anywhere in early sure. America, even if we tend to, to forget about them. And even the people who created the archives often uh, forgot about them. And the, the, the last thing, it's, it's a bit of a philosophical point in, in a way, but 
I'm shocked by the fact that even though what they, what Bassist and Marianne were doing was exceptional, the situation might appear exceptional, no one is talking about it as something exceptional. Oh. I do not see any document in which people seem to be throwing their, their hands in the air and what are those kids up to and how, how is that even possible? No one questions the fact that they run away 61 times. You have a, a prominent businessman, a very well-known slaveholder and a very well-known litigant who's showing up at the the higher court in the colony and flatly declaring those children ran away from me 61 times and they cost me money. And he cites very important people, businessmen, uh, government figures, religious uh, figures, uh, local priests and so on and so forth, um, who retrieved them. So clearly they, they knew, they knew about it for years and no one seems to consider that situation as outlandish. Right. And he himself is not, certainly if he is embarrassed about it or or finds it as some kind of attack on him as a citizen or, or whatever, he doesn't, he's not embarrassed about it enough to not put it in a legal document and try to get reimbursed. Exactly. And it's, and it's definitely credible enough to be to be considered absolutely valid evidence sure. and it's copied and it's mentioned and it's, uh, and it's referenced. And so what it suggests to me is that Yes, actually, enslaved people did run away a lot, uh, and slaveholders knew about that extremely well. And it's it's interesting to to for a bit of context in the the, the rest of the the research I I, I did beside this exceptional case, um, I I'm, the archives of, of French colonial Louisiana are, are are they're they're large, but they're basically they're not that large that. Well, basically, I've seen every document. Sure. <laughs> I think I managed to see every document in the period of my doctoral research. It's, it's actually doable, which wouldn't be doable for other colonies. Um, and I think I found every case of runaway who's documented, and I've, I've counted just under 200 of them. Mm -hmm. I have 197 uh, that are listed in the little database I, I made for myself. That means over that, that period that, that the Louisiana is a French colony, if we take that at face value, that means that four enslaved people would have run away per year. That is obviously right. completely absurd, that Baptiste and Marianne run away more than that just themselves. Sure. And, and so you, you have on the one hand the clear evidence that runaways and slave resistance in general are extremely underreported and underdocumented. But then we have an, when you have an exceptional story that seemed to display a whole lot of that agency, people recognize it as something that, yes, is regularly happening. That is kind of a routine situation. Yeah, uh, that that's great. That's very, very interesting. I mean, I do, I want to push a little bit or, or go a little bit about this kind of philosophical point you were making again, that the, the goal doesn't always have to be uh, representation. Every case doesn't have to represent the whole. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think you had mentioned that you see your work as part of a, a you know, micro history. And, you know, this feels like it, as I was reading it, it felt like history from the bottom up, which I think is a phrase that, that we've used already, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the kind of the the field that started, I think, developing in the 1930s, but really kind of hit, hit a golden age, at least in the US. I think in different countries, it was different in the 60s and 70s, was this kind of wanting to capture, not Thomas Jefferson, but wanting to capture regular people, history from the bottom up. And most of that work was quantitative, which was we can't see the individuals. And so what we see is their probate records or census records or these other things. 
Um, and so that quantitative social history seems to have given way, at least in your own work and other people who have done microhistories, as a kind of qualitative social history, not looking at the aggregate, but looking at the individual. Is, is that how you see your work? Is your work a, a, an act of recovery? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's an act of, of, of recovery. I mean, it's a... I don't know. You tell me or not, but do you think it's appropriate that I mentioned what I told you just before we actually sure. recorded? Of well, course. That I, so I, I, sp I spent so much time thinking about about those two those two children and their and their life and trying to imagine their world based on very limited document. I spent so much time obsessing over those documents that I decided I would have their names uh, tattooed on me, and I got my first tattoo uh, on my on my arm, which which is which is their name. Um, so definitely, I want to retrieve their history. My, Ultimately, I would very much like it if they featured, you know, in, in textbooks alongside the, the governors of Louisiana. So I, I live in I live in Louisiana, and the, you know, the, the slaveholders and the, the people who upheld the systems of, of, of slavery that oppressed people like Bassist and Marianne, they are commemorated and celebrated. I mean, I, I live on Jefferson Street, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would very much like if we could strike a bit of a balance and retrieve the memory of of some individuals uh, like, like them, but. Beyond that, I I was very influenced by microhistorical studies, and I'm thinking of uh, I'm, I'll throw some books out there, but uh, there's a fabulous book uh, entitled Rebecca's Revival by John Sesbach, mm -hmm. uh, who look at the the history of a, an African uh, an African American woman who was uh, formerly enslaved and who became uh, like a preacher for the Moravian Church, and like it's a very interesting transatlantic life. Um, a bit along the same veins, there's a more famous story by uh, Alan Greer. Uh, the, the book is called Mohawk Saints. It looks at the, the history of Catherine uh, Tegaquida, who was the, the first uh, Native American saint uh, recognized by the Catholic Church. And so he, those, those authors look at exceptional lives as well. And there's a difference with the type of story that I look at. They look at figures who became famous, who had a lot mm -hmm. written about them, who eventually wrote, had biographies written about them. Um, so I'm looking at even more uh, obscure uh, figures in a way. But the thing that I'm the most interested in is trying to recover. And I realize it's not entirely feasible. And I realize it's a point of contention with some historians and sometimes with some reviewers when you try to publish an, an essay along those lines. Sure. That there's a pushback that you cannot really know what they thought and you cannot really, you cannot really speculate that much. But I would argue if you don't, if you don't make the effort, then you cannot write that story. And those people experiences and perspectives and ambitions and hopes and dreams without, you know, being too grandiose about it are essentially lost forever. So I think uh, there's, there's a, the, the phrase by another historian, uh, Stephanie Smallwood, who says that she, she, she urges historians to write histories that are um, responsible and to be accountable to, to, the, to the enslaved themselves. Mm -hmm. There's a purpose in writing those story, which is to not just to honor the, the memory of, of people who were unrecognized in the past, but also to genuinely try to consider them as humans, which means considering their, men, their, their mental world, their ideas, uh, their feelings, their emotions, even if, of course, you know, that, that pushes the boundaries of what we can actually accomplish as historians. Sure. But I would, I would think that's definitely a, a worthy uh, avenue of... Um, uh, Yes, I'm blanking on the words a bit, but um, I think it's worth, it's worth our efforts. Sure. And I mean, I think that it's also, even if 
if you look at this piece from the most kind of critical view, which is to say that the there are holes at the center of it with Baptiste and Marion, there's things about them we don't know. Um, on one side, I think you've made a powerful case for the importance of recovering what we do know, attempting to assemble what we can't know for sure. But even as part of that, what this piece also does is, for me as a reader, and hopefully for our readers, is it recreates that world in which they operated, which sheds light on a network of social interactions um, that is really valuable, even if there are some things that we wish we knew about Baptiste and, and Marianne that we don't know. Yeah, I, I I totally agree, and I think that's that's the part that that actually can make it tangible, and that in the effort mm. to reconstitute their their motivations and their ambitions, which is definitely involves some speculation. The best evidence I have for that is the people that they surrounded themselves with, and that I can mm -hmm. actually that I can actually demonstrate. Sure, um, and I think it 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 definitely it definitely reveals some patterns and some uh, logic that we can I identify that demonstrates that they were not simply individuals. They were part also of, of a community building uh, efforts. They were mm -hmm. part of collective uh, struggles that even though, you know, they're not starting a revolution, they're not trying to abolish slavery. They're looking for essentially their own survival and to, 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 to protect, um, even the, what we would call today their mental health, probably. Mm -hmm. um, they're doing that as part of a collective effort that involves all the other people around them whose stories are even less documented than theirs because there's no documents right. about most of them. So, you know, your, your piece that you have here looks at a, a fairly... We have a, a source that gives unique insight to, into a, a slice of their lives. Do we know what happened to Baptiste and Marianne after this? Uh, sadly, the, the short answer is no, I, I do not. I have a, I have a hypothesis that I mentioned at the end of the article, uh, which is grounded in some, some evidence that I have, is that the, the last person who is recorded as having purchased them um, is, a, is a merchant, and he, his family eventually moves to Saint-Domingue a few years later, and uh, so some of his uh, children works as an official in the, the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which is uh, today Haiti in the Caribbean. And so it's very possible, uh, it's only a few years later, that uh, he would have taken them there and so that they would have found themselves in an even more alien world. But interestingly, mm. it was not unusual for indigenous captives to be uh, deported to the, to the Caribbean. That happened after a lot of Indian wars, including in New England, but also in, in Louisiana. But I also know that a few months after having been uh, sold to this to this merchant, uh, Baptiste is, was already reported as having run away twice again. Mm. So it didn't stop them from uh, from continuing uh, their uh, their acts of uh, defiance. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the article, and thanks for talking about it with me. I've I've been a real pleasure to talk about your work. Thank you so much for having me. It was a it was a pleasure to, to talk about their story. Music for this podcast features King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band's 1923 recording of Mabel's Dream. King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band was one of the first Black American jazz ensembles to receive a recording contract from Paramount Records. In its early years, the band featured 
Joe Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Johnny Dodds, Honor Daughtry, Lil Armstrong, Johnny St. Sir, and Babe Dodds. Thanks for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Follow us on X at The Jam Hist and Facebook at The Journal of American History to hear about upcoming episodes like this. For more bite-sized history content, listen to our blogcast episodes. Have ideas or content you'd like to see on our show? Email us at jahcast at oah.org.